Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're excited to welcome back to the podcast Christopher McKnight Nichols. Chris is the Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair in National Security Studies and a professor of history at The Ohio State University, and he's also the co-editor and co-author with Elizabeth Bogwart and Andrew Preston of Rethinking American Grand Strategy, a great edited volume that came out in 2021 and uh, the volume we're going to talk about today. So Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Just want to note that the book is on the bookshelf. I don't know if we're going to use this video, but the book is on the bookshelf <laughs> behind Chris. He's doing a great job of promoting. Yeah, you're doing a great job promoting. Did you get Did you get? Uh, uh, what do the universities do? They hire like, you know, consultants to, to tell you, like, don't fart on camera. But, uh, <laughs> that's why we don't have any tenure track professors anymore. But um, <laughs> Chris, why don't we start with the first question, which is what is grand strategy? Okay. So you're starting with the hardest question, basically. Always. What is grand strategy? So, well, I'll give you uh, two paths to, the, to an answer. One sort of how I got into the subject, which is to say um, political scientists have spilled a lot of ink on what is and isn't grand strategy. Um, and most of the scholarship on this comes out of statecraft and military history, hard power kinds of questions. And I've been perplexed for quite a few years about what counts as grand strategy, uh, the kind of self-serving ways in which politicians, particularly sort of your great white men, Architects of statecraft like to consider themselves and project being architects of grand strategy. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I really want to historicize the subject, see who and what counts, and perhaps expand the definition. So it seemed to me inherently limited, uh, though not necessarily um, singularly problematic to locate this in hard power, military sorts of questions or statecraft, but it seems like there's a lot more to grand strategy. All right. So what is grand strategy? Well, you know, uh, it, it's kind of an unstable category, as I think I've already begun to make clear. There's been a proliferation of places that study grand strategy. So programs at Yale, at Duke, at Cambridge, um, you know, around the world. And then there's been a, a sort of uh, almost omnipresence of ways in which the term grand strategy appears in other walks of life. So you get people doing grand strategy in marketing for Starbucks, for instance. You get grand strategies for, you know, orange theory and new ways to take over the world through exercise regimes and that sort of thing. So all of which is, is uh, you know, both a sort of et briefly etymological way of thinking about this and scholarly way and also a way to say um, that there, there are some problems there. So in the book, uh, what we tried to do and what we did was gather a whole bunch of really smart historians uh, in a kind of conference setting to work through some of the problems of definitions of grand strategy. And in the book, one of the things that Andrew Preston and I say at the beginning um, is that we need to do more definitional work to expand grand strategy to um, encompass sort of what we call the hidden grand strategies and grand strategists in the historical record. So part of my reason reason for being perplexed about what counts and doesn't count is, to my mind, missionaries should count, right? The most sweeping kinds of religious transformation of the globe should count as a grand strategy. Uh, why? Okay, so definitionally, let me dive right in. All right, one of the best ways to understand what a grand strategy is, is it's matching necessarily limited means to long-term ambitious ends. That's a sort of rough paraphrase of, of John Lewis Gaddis meets Paul Kennedy. But obviously, it has to be more to it than that to make it grand. Uh, so the grand is part of the ambition. It's the scope. It, it's longitudinal. It's long term. And it's reasonable in the sense that it's matching limited uh, means, right? You know, it's, you're not saying if every, if every tool is at your disposal, you can convert the world. You can, you know, create a, an enormous empire. So if you look back to the historical record, you can find lots of individuals doing this work. Well, what else is it? One of the things we argue in the, in the, uh, introduction to the book is that when you expand who and what counts as grand strategy, it also fits more as a kind of epistemology. All right, what's that? Well, in this sense, it's about structuring knowledge. The grand strategy is about the kind of core assumptions that you have and hold uh, about what operates in the world, what makes the world work fundamentally, and then how you can match your means to your ends to achieve those goals. So there's lots of other ways to think through this. You know, one one of the catchphrases that I often bring up is that Hal Brands, a historian at um, Johns Hopkins, 
has a has a useful co- condensation of of one of the definitions, which is the intellectual architecture that lends structure to foreign relations. Um, and I think that's also useful in understanding this. And, and we can unpack this a little bit more in our conversation. So, Chris, my my question, and I I don't mean it to sound uh, confrontational, but it, it, it is basically is grand strategy a real thing? Um, sure. And I mean that in the sense of like, is it something that presidential administrations actually a space that they actually operate in uh or is it something that historians or you know political scientists scholars after the fact come in and try to construct a strategy for a past administration and if it is something that presidents have used or have operated in in the past is it still something that's relevant? Because it feels like, especially since the end of the Cold War, we've been in a uh, we've been through a number of presidencies that didn't seem to have much of a strategy uh, to what they were doing. So I, I guess there's a, a few parts to that, but uh, take it as you will. Right, I'm with you on that, and I think some of the criticism of who and what counts as grand strategy and is there really one fits right. This is this is reasonable to ask. This is part of my motivation for for working on the subject. So if you want to take an archetypal one, if there is such a thing, if we can agree on such a thing as grand strategy, it, it's probably containment. It's probably George Kennan, cir- circa 1946 and 47, developing a kind of holistic worldview, not singularly limited to war, um, but also the shaping of the peace that comes after it, uh, how, to, how to construct a kind of a large scale system that then within which a whole different set of policies and players uh, could operate over time. So it's not like containment is the same thing. And even, you know, if, if one knows anything about George Kennan, he finds up recanting some of the ways in which his policies were developed just in the 1950s, like really rapidly after it containment comes out. But the point is that over over several generations, containment was a dominant understanding of the U.S.'s grand strategy in the Cold War. However you want to think that through, and we could trouble different moments, as a whole uh, sort of holistic strategic conception, that, that has to be, that has to count. Um, so it's ideological, it's economic, it's military, it, it's, a, it's a very big picture kind of strategy. Other grand strategies of presidents, national security strategies, don't, don't measure up quite as much. I mean, you'd look to the, the rise of the national security strategy it really begins in the Reagan administration, and now presidents are obliged to develop them. And they often have these kinds of long-term agendas, but they're rarely uh, continued administration to administration. So your critique fits, right? You know, it's hard to imagine a Biden grand strategy now, if there is one, you know, fitting for as a multi-generational kind of project. So, you know, what what does that even look like? But you might have said something similar uh, in the 1940s with different kinds of changes. Perhaps there's an aborning, say, environmental grand strategy that we can't fully understand right now, or a, or an aborning public health grand strategy coming out of the the the, the pandemic um, that we can't fully fathom. So that that's that's one sort of slice through your 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 I think quite accurate critique. But if you expand grand strategy to also fit non-state actors and other kinds of groups, right, missionaries, um, uh, women's peace activists, you know, anti-colonial nationalists, other kinds of groups, you might say that there are some other grand strategies around the world that are going on, whether we like it or not, right? So there's no doubt that Vladimir Putin has something resembling a kind of grand strategy, matching his necessarily limited means to long-term ends of kind of creating an imagined uh, imperial ruse. It's not going very well for him. Uh, But the measure of grand strategies, I would argue, in the historical record isn't necessarily that they're a success, but rather that they're articulated, attempted to be implemented, and then, you know, get out there in the world in some way, shape, or form. So that would be one we could think about um, Xi and uh, the sort of what is going on with China's expansion of its power? Uh, I don't know what, what we would think of its grand strategy. Lots of ink has been spilled on this, and we could dive into that if you'd like. But I think if we look around the world right now and look at so those are both nation states, but we could think also about the WHO. Uh, we could think about you know international organization and the kinds of ways in which they are doing grand strategizing, whether or not that um, develops into meaningful strategies is another question there. So, you know, anyway, it's, the critique is right on, I think. You know, I don't see lots of clear grand strategies in U.S. foreign relations right now. But I also think that another thing that's a subtext of your point, which is probably worth drawing out, is there's certainly been a search in American policymaking for doctrines. 
we've seen this throughout the 20th century, a, a kind of yearning, especially the last half of the 20th century to the present, a kind of yearning for, and this we do see a lot of, a Biden doctrine, what would it look like, or an Obama doctrine. Uh, you know, Certainly the 2002 national security strategy under George Bush was preemption, was a Bush doctrine. It was, it, it was a break with something that U.S. policymakers had thought about in the past a lot, and, and Danny's written a little bit about this. Uh, but in fact, um, it was a rejection of of that the the formerly more reluctant to do preemption kinds of ways. Even some very hawkish American policymakers had ruled out of bounds. So that that fits as one. Now, where does a doctrine fit within a grand strategy? You know, we could we could talk about this. I, I tend to think about that it's it's that intellectual architecture. A doctrine is one of those pillars that's sort of holding it up. What's the difference between grand strategy and first principle? So to me, it, it seems like their nation states and, and NGOs and, and missionaries, they have these first principles. Let's just use the one that most mm-hmm. listeners will know. The U.S. wants to be the prime military and economic power. That is its first principle. And then it does various things to try to achieve that in various ways. So what is the actual difference between a grand strategy and first principle? And why does adopting the framework of a grand strategy what, – well, maybe – what does it provide us with it? Just saying like the U.S. has a goal and it tries to achieve it. Right. So uh, one of the ways that people who study grand strategy, one of the theorists they always go back to is Clausewitz. (laughs) This won't surprise you. Right. So Clausewitz says something like tactics uh, is the art of using troops in battle and strategy is the art of using battles to win the war. And grand strategy is about shaping the peace and the world to come something like that. That's that's an extension of Clausewitz. Clausewitz didn't go that far. He just went through the question of um, the strategy as using battles to win the war component. Um, and so I, th- so I, I invoke that um, as a way of differentiating kind of tactics and strategy from grand strategy. And that the grand strategy, such as we can find it in the historical record, um, I think is more than first principles. A first principle might be something like being hegemonic after the conflict, but it if it were specific enough to entail, for instance, say, developing a League of Nations and a robust series of weights and measures and, and new standards across nation states, equalizing small and large powers, this sort of thing, suddenly you're, you're down to some pretty specifics, which strikes me as fundamentally different from a first principle like being a hegemon or you know having primacy. That could be part of it. So if you think about policy planning documents and strategies within a grand strategy, absolutely. So what are the means to achieve your ends of containing Soviet expansion. One might be primacy amongst all other democratic nations or all or you know uh, primacy in the third world, right? We could think about modernization theory and economics as part of a vision to create a world uh, very hospitable to American democratic capitalism. So those are the strategies that up to add up to the much bigger grand strategy. And the principle might be something like primacy or hegemony, but it, that doesn't seem to me to be the the end in and of itself in the broader strategic sense. I mean, this can get pretty abstract in some ways. Uh, and this is where the, a lot of the political science literature bogs down. You see, now we're, we're parsing some, you know, X, Y axis of all the things that count and don't count. And, you know, I think that that mistakes some of what we're trying to do, what I've been trying to do in, in saying, look, there's some problems here definitionally, but even more than that, uh, we're, we're too limited in thinking about who and what counts as doing grand strategy. And so, you know, um, so the missionaries, for instance, is another going back to them for a minute. But if you think about the sweeping kind of world change that they want um, to, to cite the evangelical D.L. Moody circa 1900, he wanted to evangelize the world in one generation. Maybe that's the first principle. But then within that grand strategy is how you how you select outposts, who you send out into the world, right? How you have a funding scheme. What are all the mechanisms by which you get to that? A kind of uh, global hegemonic mission project. So so this is. Compelling. Could the, the the example that I always use, and no disrespect, but could a, a, a smaller power have a grand strategy? Could a Bolivia have a grand strategy, for example? Uh, 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 could um, an Australia have a grand strategy? Could a New Zealand have a grand strategy? Because it does seem, you know, on one sense, you could say, of course, they could have a grand strategy, right? Anyone could have a grand strategy. I could have a grand strategy in my life, which is to make Derek be my right. friend. Uh, it's failed so far, but we're we're trying. Uh, but, yeah, I don't. I don't want to 
you know, bust your bubble there. <laughs> but in practical purposes, start with your tactics and operations. Danny. Come on. <laughs> uh, but in a practical sense, can these countries really have a grand strategy because they're they're operating within a structure set by larger powers, and in, in this case, the United States. So, what do you say to that inquiry? Yeah, you know, I think that that's um, it's an important point, and it is one that. Frankly, I've struggled a little bit with uh, my uh, co-editor, Andrew Preston, uh, likes to joke as a Canadian, and I hope I'm not quoting him out of bounds, that Canada can't have a grand strategy, uh, but it can kind of have allies in its grand strategy. Right. It could operate in a world set by mm-hmm. other powers, particularly in that case, yeah. the United States, right? Canada can have a grand strategy, but it's not going to go anywhere. So, yeah. Right. I mean, there's an essay in the in the, in the the book um, by Charlie Adele on the grand strategy of the early republic. So the US as a weaker power, but having a grand strategy that's hemispheric, for instance, uh, and thinking about John Quincy Adams's role in articulating that up through the Monroe Doctrine in 1823. So I think, you know, there are ways in which you could argue in the historical record in the present that countries like Bolivia could have, or think today, perhaps we could argue about what what Ukraine's grand strategy is in this longitudinal long-term sense, right? Not just about winning the war, which is what, you know, sort of military theorists would get us through, but shaping the peace to come after. Do they join NATO? If you look at rankings of their democracy, it's not particularly high by those who, who attempt to uh, create those objective rankings, a more fully democratic, more more engaged civil society, you know, a, a more diversified economy, whatever you want to pick for those examples. I think you could make a case for Ukraine beginning to articulate a kind of a grand strategy that would be you know, legible to us as thinking about that, even though it's a weaker power subject to the aggression of a nearby neighbor, for instance. Before we delve into like the historical grand strategies, let's talk a bit about their actual empirical articulation in, in specific programs. So you you gesture toward this in, in your introduction, but I just want to underline grand strategy, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it really was a project that came out of Yale in the 80s and 90s with John Lewis Gaddis and Paul Kennedy. Uh, my understanding is in the wake of Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers book, which was like this really big hit that it's kind of funny. A lot of people have forgotten about that book, but like in the in the late 80s, it was like the book you had on your desk to indicate that you were a serious person. So they developed this program in the late 80s and 90s at Yale in order to train Yale students to run the world. These programs later expanded. I was actually at Duke when it began mm-hmm. its grand strategy program. I was a first or second year graduate student there. And 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 this is a program funded by conservative money, if I'm correct. This is um, both Yale and Duke were funded by conservative money. I'm not sure about the other programs, but should we be teaching our nation's oligarchs to run the world <laughs> through programs like this, right? Is this not just reinforce notions of hegemony? And this is not something you address in your book, but I know you are familiar with these programs. So is grand strategy in, in actual practice embodied in these programs just another way to talk about American hegemony and American primacy and, you know, <laughs> forcing the nation's rich kids to read Thucydides? before they go off to McKinsey, you know, is is this really a good thing or not? Yeah. uh, Well, so I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, Most are podcast worthy. Uh, Some are more better for over beers. Uh, But uh, so uh, I think that's an apt description. I would, I suppose some, as far as I understand, the funders for some of these projects are also sort of centrist. So uh, uh, you you do get. I think there was one big seed funder who was conservative, but I take your point. It's not just yeah. conservative. Money. I mean, it, yeah. it's a you know the the basic conceit of the project of, of of grand strategy programs is that you need to train capaciously uh, to understand all of the myriad variables of the international system. Um, that maybe that sounds like gobbledygook, but it's it's Thucydides, it's Shakespeare, it's sort of Renaissance thinking in a world of STEM. So on the one level, as someone who is a, 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 you know, a staunch advocate for the humanities, yes, right? Okay. On, the other, on another level, as you noted, it's a, it's a very, as we say in the introduction, and one of the reasons um, Liz Borgwart was so invested in the book is it's a very great white man reifying kind of version of who and what counts as diplomacy and, and what the sort of oligarchs need to know. It's a very Western civ-oriented version, right? 
But it's not exclusively that. And I think as these programs have developed over time, and there's there's been some controversies here, and I've weighed in on these things publicly, the Yale program, for instance, has been expanding. Our book, Rethinking American Grand Strategy, is in those conversations. It includes, you know, we've got a chapter on the unbearable whiteness of grand strategy. I mean, that does not sound like the, you know, center-right version of grand strategy. Uh, there's a chapter in the book on, on social movements. We can get into a whole bunch of this stuff that was written by Beverly Gage, who was running the grand strategy program until she was pushed out at Yale, uh, or actually she resigned um, because of the way, the way that some of these funders were interested in. Basically, they wanted Henry Kissinger to kind of be the, the core model of, of grand strategy um, there, uh, and they wanted him on the board. But I've gone and I've presented, and you would be impressed with the breadth and diversity of the kinds of people taking those classes, I think. Um, it, it isn't, it, it is not simply the caricatured version. What class do those people come from, Chris? <laughs> Even economic class? You'd yeah. be surprised. There's a lot of international students and, and, and scholarship students and, and folks. Again, I think you would be surprised to some extent. It isn't what it was in the past, but of course, there's a core group who are you know, fourth generation Yaleys. Uh, and the same thing as a Duke. But what I've been surprised at, one of the reasons we constructed the book is as a way of opening this conversation. So if you, you know, it's, it's very um, delicately written in some of the framing to, to try to convince some of the people who have a much more narrow version that you need to expand your definition, you need to include more folks. You know, it's not a polemical shot across the bow of these programs, but it is a call to do a lot more. Um, so, you know, you, you could call that, you know, attempted persuasion, you know, good scholarship, th that sort of thing. So, but the, so the programs, you know, they've pr proliferated worldwide. And I, and I think, you know, another way to think about this, and we ta we've talked about this a little bit before, you know, one of the tilts of the humanities has been that, that we've gotten in these battles over trying to make, make very particular cases about our utility. Um, and here's an example where kind of humanistic knowledge seems manifestly positively leading to, to particular kinds of outcomes that some students want. I'm putting that diplomatically, but it, but I think you get the gist, which is to say, here's a way you can train a small cohort of students in a seminar really rigorously who can come out of it doing more than just that. And one of the goals I know of a few of these programs now is to churn out um, sort of NGO and I, INGO leaders. So, you know, it isn't just putting them into foreign service, but frankly, and I'll just put my cards on the table, I would rather we have more people training in, in Thucydides and Shakespeare and going into foreign service then, you know, yet another cohort of middling engineers who are hoping to get, you know, hoping to get jobs with bad GPAs because that's the only way they can get through with all their student debt. So, you know, <laughs> uh, I guess in that sense, I'm, I'm willing to make a little bit of this bargain with grand strategy. Uh, on the other hand, if we're producing more Henry Kissingers, that's an enormous problem for all these programs. I don't I frankly don't see. The problem is more <laughs> yeah. Henry Kissinger's. I'm sorry. I'm, you're going to have to explain. Yeah, Derek disagrees. He's a big Kissinger head. And you, viewers can't see it, but he has three posters of Kissinger behind him, two of which are signed. Chris, can you have an anti hegemonic grand strategy? Which. Formulations of hegemony are you thinking? So are Let's they say prim primacy? Can you have a grand strategy in the United States that's anti-primacy and actually make empirical moves with it, like moves in the actual world? Because it does seem to me like my my own experience in the program and my reading in this is that there is diversification in terms of actors. There is diversification in terms of institutions that you examine, but in the end, tell me if I'm wrong. It's kind of about managing U.S. empire to some degree in a decline or an increase, but that is the ultimate end. And, and, and even more, why did this thing called grand strategy develop in the United States, right? It didn't really develop elsewhere. Um, I mean, you could trace it back to, you know, geopolitical and geoeconomic thinking and whatnot, but it developed at a very particular time, the end of the Cold War. The US is becoming the unipolar power, and it's kind of about managing this. And that's what someone like Gaddis, who, by the way, I think is one of the best historians of the 20th century, and I always teach his strategies of containment. It is brilliant. But that's like what Gaddis wanted to do. He got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush, right? He's, he's a primacist, and a lot mm -hmm. of these initial founders are. So that that basically is where that question 
comes from. Got it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you put it that way. I think So there's two uh, historical moments where grand strategy emerges. And you're right about the second, but the first is World War II. And you see a real rise of the, the use of the term circa 1939 and 1946. And, is and this it, the Mead Seminar at Princeton, the makers of yeah. modern... Okay, so just exactly. very briefly. So there's a, a famous book released in 1943, which my boy Hans Speyer contributed to the original mm-hmm. edition, but he was taken out of later editions, even though his, his essay is excellent on Ludendorff and Total War. There was a seminar at Princeton that basically started strategic studies at a, as a field. They came out with a volume called Makers of Modern Strategy, had a couple editions afterward with essays added, essays taken out. And there was a recent book that was just released called The New Makers of Modern Strategy. And everyone in that book, from what I recall, comes from a very particular political perspective, none of which are anti-hegemonic. So so sorry to please. No, that's a a great recap. So we've got a chapter from Andrew Preston on um, Edward Mead Earl uh, in the book and the kind of rise of of the use of the term and and what the seminar produced and what kinds of data sets they were looking at. And of course, they're thinking about U.S. world leadership and uh, something approaching hegemony, however you want to put the term. So I think, you know, one reason to point to that earlier moment is to think about U.S. world leadership as the kind of definitional structure for grand strategy. Now, it, I don't know that that necessarily entails as a sort of intellectual exercise or, or strategic process, the kind of hegemony you're noting. I, I could imagine a kind of multilateralism where U.S. world leadership were um, a sort of partnership model. You can think a little bit about scholarship on human rights and the way that, for instance, the non-governmental organizations and activists were part of those networks. I'm thinking about the, the book by Sarah Snyder um, from Selma to Moscow and different kinds of groups operating both within and outside of the terrain of the f- formal U.S. diplomacy. But then you're right. Then at the end of the Cold War, you get this a second rise of grand strategy, thinking about unipolarity and hegemony. And it's very clearly linked to that in a lot of the public scholarship. It comes out of IR. You know, Gaddis is part of that. But Gaddis is is the history side of the the IR conversations about this. So he, he appeals to us in this because he's more historically specific and archivally rich. But, you know, there's a lot of theorizing about that. So I, I, I think that there could be, you know, one of the things that um, that I've seen in the reading the current tea leaves of, say, Jake Sullivan is that there were some openings um, rhetorically to a kind of multilateral grand strategy when the Biden administration came in that have seemingly been foreclosed in some ways, or at least haven't um, grown to some sort of thing that could could be counted as a grand strategy. So I'm deep in an essay on this. So uh, I would just say they wanted to reinvigorate American leadership, particularly in Europe, which they refer to something as the prime power. I think it's still very much a a U.S. hegemony slash leadership position, but sort of bringing more people in post-Trump. So I would still say it's multilateral minus kind of like the U.S. is not one of the multilateral powers in this framing from from what I understand. I I buy that. I will eagerly read what you got to say and just simply say that that it's possible. So the question is, can you have a kind of anti-hegemonic one, some of the rhetorical moves there? And one of the reasons that the Biden administration, like America is back, was received very positively was the contrast with the Trump administration, but also a hope that it would go farther along that path. So that suggests to me in the wider international community, there's some thinking that, and again, does this rise to the level of grand strategy or not? You know, let's just say a, a national security strategy of the near past or present could be more multilateral, and that would be something that would be welcome on the world stage, right? So, but you can look back to some other moments. One of the chapters in the book talks about that that World War II planning moment and thinks about you know FDR's commitments to a kind of a global system that might look something different from singular hegemony, right? The four policemen or, you know, a kind of uh, four freedoms kind of model. Of course, that doesn't happen. But that's a possibility in the grand strategizing of the World War II moment. I'd like to talk for a second uh, more specifically about this this attempt to diversify the sources of grand strategy. So why why is this project important and what does it add to our understanding of international relations um so let me just propose my thesis mm-hmm. that, that basically my log of all thesis is that the us is just the most important structuring power in the international sphere and has been since 1945 if not slightly earlier um and so there are people who react to the us who sort of move around the power field c- constructed by the us but they are ultimately reacting to the us so tell me why i'm wrong about that and why grand strategy of human rights groups or missionaries 
helps us understand things in new ways. So I don't necessarily think you're wrong about that. The last chapter of the book is by Fred Logoval, which argue, which caps the book uh, with real skepticism about even at the moment of containment, uh, that it was much more set, uh, a set of ad hoc policies and planning moments uh, determined by other exogenous geopolitical factors in a wide range of things. Uh, so if containment the in the late 40s into the early 50s is is uh, some kind of archetypal grand strategy, he would say, well, then perhaps the whole way of thinking about grand strategy is a bit flawed. And and I don't dispute that. That's part of the sort of c- contention of opening the book up to have a, a number of different perspectives, including grand strategy should be taken with a big grain of salt, if that uh, adequately uh, answers uh, the hypothesis one. Hypothesis two, or, 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 or provocation two about uh, what it adds. One of the things that I'm proudest about of the book that I hadn't really thought about until we um, started uh, working on it was to have the former head of the Yale Grand Strategy Program, a public health scholar named Betsy Bradley, in as one of the contributors to the book. And my conversations with her in about 2016 and 17 rejuvenated my interest in the pandemic or what would become the pandemic, but in public health questions. She has a really good chapter that I highly recommend to folks. You know, it's easy to be critical of the George uh, Bush administration and there are lots of things to be incredibly- Is it PEPFAR? Yes, it's PEPFAR. PEPFAR is the thing. It's so funny. Like I'm reading all of these things. They're like, hey, we might've done a lot of damage, but we did PEPFAR. It's so funny. It's like the one thing that every administration since Bush is like, hey, we did that and that's good. Yeah. So that's the president's, you know, program for AIDS relief in Africa. It's a cautionary tale. It's not a it's not a win for uh, public health grant strategy, for instance. It's a much more unilateral move. You can think about there were some stipulations for abstinence only education and other sorts of things. But by most, you know, neutral accounts, it saved 15 to 20 million lives in Africa and counting. And it was a real commitment of George, Bush, a moral commitment of George Bush, whatever you think about the guy. This was something he wanted to do and set in motion policy planning there. And of course, also in the early Bush administration, he read uh, John Barry's book on the pandemic and start, and got active in thinking about you know future public health planning related to how the U.S. should respond in coalition with other governments if, if there was another you know 1918 flu pandemic. So so there's a chapter in the book thinking, OK, what you know, what would a capacious what, what has happened in U.S. grand strategy for public health? And this is a it's a story of failures and problems. The U.S. could have been a real proponent of of grants of a, a kind of public health grant strategy after World War One, the League of Nations has that opportunity. There's a number of groups and organizations within um, the League Health Organization that collaborated on things like malaria and this and that. I could go into a long list, and yet the U.S. isn't a signatory, uh, doesn't become part of that. It, it does have observers on that, but of course, the U.S. doesn't, you know, join the League, and the U.S. doesn't really want to participate in part because it would be bound by the strictures of some of these um, protocols. Same thing is true if you think about, you know, International Criminal Court and that kind. Of thing, U.S. sovereignty rules out against uh, allowing it to, you know, the, the U.S. to be constrained by some of this. Same thing after the Second World War, just to encapsulate this sort of trials and tribulations story. You know, when the United Nations is set up, there's the World Health Organization, and there's this by this great, you know, we, we just have a, a, a sense or two on it in here. We had to pull out some of it to keep the chapter together, but it takes a Soviet diplomat to get the U.S. a freaking seat on the World Health Organization because they, the U.S. obviously needed to be on there, but the U.S. was keeping its eye off the ball of that. So why am I saying all that? Well, you know, part of that is to suggest that having a robust public health grand strategy is a necessity for a major power like the U.S. And when you, when you look in these hard power terms, um, you really miss something significant. So you know, if this were a policy prescription, that would be, hey, take public health into account. That should be pretty obvious. Now, it was less obvious as we were putting the book together, doing events on C-SPAN and that kind of thing. So, that, you know, so how does that fit? Why does that fit? Well, Bush was doing some of this planning. And in fact, if there's any success of his administration, it's PEPFAR. There's also some reasons to think that that the ways in which, which PEPFAR was operationalized could be lessons learned for much better kinds of public health programs in the future. We end the chapter with Betsy Bradley and Lauren Taylor talks about that. So how, why, why do some of these other things fit? You know, another element is you can think about, you know, something we know and probably teach a lot. I don't know how much listeners know, but you think about the role of civil rights in the Cold War. Many of the ways in which uh, the propaganda of the Cold War was fought was related to the injustices 
you know, in American society. And, you know, the NAACP and a host of other organizations that most people haven't heard of were actively lobbying the UN and doing the kinds of work to achieve their own, I would argue, grand strategies. Some are more transcendent than others. You know, Carol Anderson, uh, a historian uh, in her book, Eyes Off the Prize, which is is older, but still really, really stands up, argues that, you know, the, a lot of those organizations sold out their real long-term grand strategic ends, which was legitimate human rights for all individuals within the U.S. and worldwide, a, an end to the color line, right? A Du Boisian color line. But they, what they wind up, their Faustian bargain is to get mo- a modicum of civil rights. And so, but these are the kinds of organizations pursuing robust grand strategies in the international system and leveraging them against the U.S., like the famous 1949 NAACP petition to the U.N. to, to make the U.S., you know, um, called to account for for lynchings and other things like that. So I think that those are examples that you and listeners would see to be both grand strategic in some fundamental ways and also ways in which sort of the apparatus, the foreign policy apparatus of the U.S. government either did or didn't take account of that in the historical record to the U.S.'s detriment often. I guess I'd, I'd like to follow that with uh, a question about climate change. Uh, given what seems to be a fairly low success rate in terms of grand strategies in global health in you know in other areas of actually achieving something rather than just sort of you know uh talking about the need to do something even in in health you know you have this success that's followed by you know pepfar that's followed by the pandemic which i think you would have to consider a, a failure of of global yeah. strategy in in any respect what does that say about our ability to deal with something like climate change that is uh, more complex and and probably a greater uh, future threat? I, I, you know, I'm asking you to kind of predict things, but but you know what is, what is your impression? Yeah, so you know I think one of the challenges here when you look at the historical record on strategizing and grand strategies over time, this is a matching of necessarily limited means to long term ends, is that. Uh, visible threats, more obvious threats are clearly better operationally uh, for developing grand strategies. So something less visible. I mean, we live with it. You know, we we would agree that, that climate change is a problem, but it is less visible and less imminent in some of the ways in which certain policymakers and others um, might think about that. Certainly skeptics think about it. You know, one of the ways that that I sort of roll back through, you know, strategy as epistemology, which is where I was starting. So sort of strategy begins with um, kind of intelligence and assessment. One challenge on climate change is that that uh, if you look at, you know, uh, foreign uh, policy military strategy, the intelligence is clear and the assessments are clear. The, the Pentagon is planning for a world of climate change. But at the level of the politics of strategy, there's a sort of bedrock of assumptions about the world and the forces that are shaping it. And that's where we have a challenge sort of a, of a global commons, you know, which countries are willing to give up more to achieve a bigger picture end. I, I think if you're looking for historical parallels, something again, you know, I, I feel like this is been my refrain a bit too much today would be something like the challenge of communism as a both particular and visible threat in the form of the Soviet Union and China, but an invisible threat ideologically. And, you know, it, it comes in lots of permutations that went awry if you think about the Cold War security state and surveillance. But you can think about the ways in which you could create a kind of coalition system to, to fight th- this challenge across borders um, and to propagandize about it. So, you know, but, but one element that I think is, is important to note, and I was just recently, just yesterday, teaching a book by a scholar, um, Jacob Hamblin, on arming Mother Nature. One of the challenges that we come out of the Cold War context on planning related to climate change is that the late Cold War was full of so much skepticism about catastrophic environmentalism that virtually everywhere in the kind of ideological landscape our critiques of our system itself, climate modeling, what what facts count, all sorts of things like that, the role of expertise. We're living in an environment where it's incredibly hard to do that particular kind, meet that particular kind of less visible challenge, I would say. This kind of relates to a thesis that I've been developing, which is that we're actually entering a post-ideological age, which is that ideology just matters less and less in terms of of, of everything, <laughs> in terms of um, actual policymaking and in terms especially of international politics. Uh, I have this piece about Fukuyama that should be out by the time this is out that's coming out in The Nation, which is like he was right. History has ended. Liberalism hasn't given rise to challengers to its domination in any real way. And that if you look at China or Russia or the United 
United States, these countries really just care about improving their relative power positions. You know, Biden uses the framework of democracy uh, versus authoritarianism. But if you look at his national security strategy, he's like, yeah, we like the rules based order. So anyone who supports the rules based order slash U.S. hegemony, we're fine with regardless of whether they're a democracy or an authoritarian state. So can you really even have a grand strategy in an age that's divorced of ideology? Then it's just people doing power in international relations, which has been done forever. I guess that is a form of grand strategy, but it does seem, like you said, you do keep on referring back to containment because there was an ideological enemy of the United States against which it could define itself. And that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I I wonder about this. I've been toying with a similar thesis where where are we in ideology in the world system and in particular governments and groups? And at the rhetorical level, I think one of the things that strikes me about the, say, the, the first things that came out about the Bi- Biden's um, interim security strategy was how similar it is to Reagan era or even Truman. Uh, and that the rhetoric and the sort of framing, to my mind, is a sort of uh, system of supporting free peoples around the world, uh, that, that the rules-based order is under threat. And for the first time, so, and then when you see the security strategy, I think it's that first section, I don't quite remember, which is like the rules-based order is under threat. You hadn't seen that in previous ones, which were like, let's shore up the rules-based order. So for, for me, it, it strikes me as a kind of um, hearkening back to a previous sort of orientation of ideology now uh, of a kind of um, freedom agenda ideology, not not the Bushian one, but the one going back to the early Cold War. But just quickly, Truman and Reagan had the communists. Yes. Biden doesn't well, have but I, what he's painting the picture he's of. He's trying with China. He has the Chinese Communist Party. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure. But it's not as real. It's so right there. It's not going to be as effective. You know, it's just not the same. There is no way an honest analyst could look at what China has done in the world and say, A, that it has any serious ambitions beyond East Asia, and B, that it imagines itself as spreading its ideology around the world. Basically, every China expert, regardless of political perspective believes that. So it's not going to work in the same way. I buy B. I don't know. I buy A. Right. I, I don't think that there's a um, ideological spread of Chinese communism. They're not, they're not planting the scenes. There's no common turn operation. We don't. We, but A, of a global spread of Chinese influence, I think there's plenty of indicators from Belt and Road. But I think it's just very quickly. I, yeah. It's so different from what the U.S. does, right? And so it, it, we can't occlude what we mean by influence. Like all major powers, China wants to get wants to get stuff and it wants to give less. Mm-hmm. It's very different from the empire of bases that the United States has constructed over the past 70 years. The United States also wants influence, but it also rings the world with bases. So I agree that China wants things from Latin America and Africa. It is of an incredibly different qualitative character than what the United States has done. That that's my take. Not that it doesn't want influence. Of course, it's just not the millenarian Protestant vision of of the U S I suppose my my take there is though that one we're in early days of this. So if if there's a oppositional framework being set up of a U.S. as a declining power and China as a rising power, you know who's to say we're not going to see bases in forty years or something? We we're, we're we as more humble historian types are making those predictions. I don't think I'm not I'm not comfortable. I'm making a prediction. We're not going to see Chinese bases like that in the next hundred years. And you could you could point to it. It's not it's right. not what they want to do. They've never they have a totally different political culture and a to- they don't have millenarian Protestantism. That to me is the big difference between every country in the United States. It's this sort of millenarianism save the world thing that Kennan, I would argue, mm-hmm. attributed to Marxism Leninism. Right. But by the time he's attributing to it, Stalin had given up on that project 20 years ago. So that's that's my grand theory. Sorry, Chris. I just want to explain myself to you. No, I, I'm partly with you on that. Uh, and, I, and I think that makes some sense. Uh, I, don't, I, I wouldn't go out on a limb on that 100-year time horizon. But I, I think the millenarian kind of perspective, make, you can wind up with bases for all kinds of reasons, other strategic reasons besides the ideological project that you're suggesting was the centerpiece of, of the American one. It is so wild to try yeah. to dominate the world. That is such yeah. a wild and crazy project. I don't see many other people. Only an American could do that, basically. <laughs> yeah. Only an American could imagine that they could dominate the world. There's your exceptionalism right there. 
Yeah, yeah. They're, American is exceptional, <laughs> exceptional in some ways, unique. Right. But but as a scholar who started out in the late 19th century, you know, I think the fits and starts of that, you know, world domination project were not intended as such. When I read the records of even Teddy Roosevelt or, you know, Henry Cabot Lodge, you know, architects of the lar- large power of annexation in the late 19th century, you know, I mean, what I often say to audiences is none of the people who are annexing the Philippines in 1898 and 1899 thought it would still be within the U.S. orbit in 1946 when it finally becomes independent. You know, um, and maybe you could find a glimmer of that, but but they weren't thinking that way. But in other ways, you know, I absolutely buy like Daniel Imrore's argument, how to hide an empire of the, the, the gradual accretion. For me, it's less a a full-fledged project until later in the 20th century and more a gradual accretion of moves and maneuvers. And I could imagine China winding up, you know, a few bombings of Chinese bases, get uh, facilities and, and engineering projects and banks, slowly gets them more and more entangled militarily. And we all know that once you have a footprint somewhere, you're more vulnerable. In any case, we're playing out hypotheticals here. But the point about the uh, uh, Biden administration, I think that they are consciously trying to shape a sort of FDR-ish message of uh, an us and them world totalitarians and fascists and and communists and sort of democratic capitalists of some way, shape or form. I, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as effective as you suggest as the ways in which the rhetorical maneuvers of the Cold War situated that thinking and that ideological apparatus. But I think it could be more effective than anything else we've seen in the us and them of terrorism and the global war on terror since 9-11. Chris, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. And I, you know, I, I think it's the question that is driving the, the great challenges of our time and, and certainly one that uh, needs to be answered. What is uh, chat GPT's <laughs> grand strategy? And when the artificial intelligence singularity takes over what what is that going to mean for the i don't i don't seriously want an answer to this i'm right. just like i feel like we jumped over like five real things that are going to threaten to destroy human <laughs> right. civilization and we've all landed on artificial intelligence is the thing that we need to be worried about so i i, I just thought i'd throw it out well i will say you know uh you're joking but you're also totally serious so one of the things we're, we're thinking about so it's a book. We're really happy that the book has gotten some significant attention. We've we've presented it in lots of formats. And very consistently, one of the subjects that comes up is about technology and the role of technology in grand strategy and the and the ways in which especially computing, AI, the sort of newest, uh, the metaverse, virtual, AR, VR are reshaping how we think about a whole range of what it means to be human. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what is power? Uh, how can you attack other cyber attacks? How can you attract, uh, attack grids? Uh, all kinds of things that, that were not in the toolkit of the military or statecraft folks in the past, um, and, but also are things that are being thought about by you know, n- non-governmental organizations and other kinds of people. And I think you know, if we do a volume two of the book, there's going to be multiple chapters related to technology, AI, and that sort of thing. And I think we're, we're going to try to track them historically. You know, where where were those conversations in the past, like weaponizing mo- the modification of the environment, like I was alluding to before, the ways in which the U.S. sort of U.S. scientists and allied scientists and military planners were seeding clouds and creating defoliants and, and creating herbicides and all that kind of stuff. Well, now that, that Pandora's box is open, but what's the AI version of that Pandora's box? What's the you know, other kinds of technological um, versions of that. I think, you know, part of, if you look at the national security strategies, you always see significant technological elements in there, often with these dire warnings. I, I don't recall it um, there, Danny, in the in the Biden one, but it's very often some of the biggest threats are technological now in a way that they 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 minimized in the past because of the fear of wider publics um, didn't want to know that that we could control the weather. They they didn't want people to know that kind of thing. And Chris, just a final question here. So as we talk about it and as I read the book, it does seem that that grand strategy is a progressive capital P project, that it assumes that one is able to, on a grand, grand scale, manage international relations. So I was just wondering if you see, given your original work uh, as a scholar, any connections between progressivism and grand strategy and, and where you see that project in 2023, given the manifold failures of U.S. foreign relations <laughs> and foreign policy in the past decades. Yeah. You know, one of my motivations for thinking about this, I mean, Danny, you're, you're really spot on there, has been thinking about 
progressivism and its relationship to U.S. foreign policy and progressive sort of goals and orientations. You know, one broad brushstroke way of thinking about it is, you know, a faith in the perfectibility of man and man's institutions. That's not precisely right. But if you think about the kinds of faith that animated progressive reform, whether it's things like the, you know, um, the initiative and the referendum, just get more voices in there and you can change democracy to more technocratic versions. If we get some experts in there, they can figure out municipal utilities so that this is not so unequal and not so screwed up and not harming people, right? Or regulation of food. You know, I think at its best, some of grand strategic planning is about that kind of orientation, but at, at its core, that is hubristic, right? And this is one of the huge problems with foreign relations, that, that the kind of arrogance in US foreign policy that we could spend a whole nother podcast just running through, or maybe the whole podcast series is fundamentally about in some way, right? American prestige is premised on a kind of arrogance that the US can do it. If not alone, then can do it and achieve it, whatever it is, right? So the so the great thing about that progressive optimism is that it helps us strive for better things, get out in the street, protest, you know, take petitions, change government, right? I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I want to be. On the pessimistic side, right, the kind of progressivism that leads to grand strategy can lead to, you know, preemption, right? Can lead to a view that, that hey, we've got a sufficient amount of intelligence to start a conflict uh, and not plan it enough. Now, I'm not pretending that the Vulcans or the neocons were progressives, far from it, but just that kind of uh, core intersection. Well, of they emerge from Cold War liberalism, which emerges in some ways from progressivism. Yeah. So it's actually, right. I think they are capital P progressive in some ser serious ways. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't want to label them as such, but I, I'm with you. You know, the, that intellectual genealogy is, is almost a straight line, right? It's an impulse for sure. You know, but one, just to also orient that, you know, the chapter that I, I mentioned that Beverly Gage wrote is on social movements. And she does a really interesting thing in the chapter. And this also tells you something about how grand strategy is being taught at other places. She pulls out Saul Alinsky's chapter on the rules for radicals. And she shows how Alinsky does, does Shakespeare, does Thucydides, and argues that for radicals and activists, that the sort of proper orientation of doing grand strategy is a, as a kind of, I think as she terms it in a subheading, Machiavelli for have-nots. So that there is something, now I'm not just saying at the national security strategy of the US level, but at the ground strategy level of other people who maybe think of themselves as progressives, that there's something to doing strategy and strategizing that is really fundamentally important about matching those limited means to ends, about doing strategy. I mean, I really subscribe to this thinking, even though it often goes awry, is that we're much better off, to paraphrase Dwight Eisenhower, by doing the planning. And screw the plans, right? But the planning itself is really important. And we sometimes get caught up in tactics and operations. We just jump to the street or we jump to taking names or, you know, and, and, and doing things. And we don't have that fuller, uh, fully articulated kind of strategy. Uh, call it grand or call it just a, a larger kind of strategy. So, you know, for me, there is this really important progressive element. I think you put your finger exactly on it. And um, it has uh, different kind of formulations and valences in, in formal foreign policy. But at the level of INGOs and other kinds of groups, you know, I, I would I would point people to thinking about how grand strategies have been developed and implemented, because that could really benefit any kind of group. And I, I mean this in the, the beginning of, of our conversation. What how do you define it? Well, uh, you know, I don't really care what Starbucks's grand strategy is. But, you know, you look at during the pandemic, right, Black Lives Matter you know, had global protests, right, around the world, uh, organized in a largely leaderless kind of operation. What is it, what does that kind of organization or movement look like if they're practicing a kind of grand strategic process? You know, it could be much more world shaping potentially. Chris McKnight Nichols, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out his volume co-edited with Andrew Preston and Elizabeth Bogwart, Rethinking American Grand Strategy. Chris, we'll definitely have you on again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Danny. Derek, so fun to talk with you both.